Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. to another. Um, that's half the story. The other half the story is the adaptive value um, of behavior. We will ask the memo not to leave the doors open. Um, so, we also have to look at the fittest consequences of various behaviors. In other words, the adaptive value of it. Right? We can't say something's an adaptation unless it actually has fitness consequences. The positive fitness consequences. Okay? Make sense? Obviously, these are related. I said this the other day, we were just going to talk about the historical pathway kind of thing. And today, we'll talk <clears throat> mostly about the adaptive value of things, but you'll be able to see they obviously they have to go together. Something's not going to evolve unless the various intermediate steps have fitness consequences. I talked about this when I talked about circadian rhythms and how eyes might have evolved, and many people over the years through the question uh, evolution have said, what use is half an eye? And in fact, well, for detecting light, it actually is pretty useful. It's about half as useful as a whole eye. Okay, so a definition of adaptation, it's a heritable trait that either spreads because of natural selection and has been maintained by selection to the present, or is currently spreading relative to alternative traits due to natural selection. It's often harder to see this. Currently spreading is pretty hard because we have some short generation times. You'll see this in something like um, bacteria, in viruses, in things that evolve very, very quickly because their generation time is very quick. Right? We could look at something in humans, though, for example, like the ability to metabolize lactose as an adult. This is especially prominent in European populations. 
Um, and it went together with agriculture. You start drinking the milk of an animal, and every time you drink the milk, you get sick. That's not good for your fitness. But it's not only European populations, because there are African and Asian populations that domesticated animals and drank their milk. And it's spreading there, too, relative to the people that aren't lactose intolerant, or sorry, that are lactose intolerant. So there's one example from people. You then look at places where milk isn't drank, and you don't see the gene for producing lactates remaining active as adults. Questions? Okay. The nice thing is this gives us a, a way to determine if something is an adaptation. Right. It actually gives us, we have to have something that's measurable, testable, or it's not science, it's just making stuff up and arguing about it. Does it increase fitness? If the behavior itself increases fitness relative to those that don't have the behavior, that's an adaptation. If your behavior increases fitness relative to other behaviors, you might be an adaptation. Okay. Okay. Jeff Foxworthy? You know, if he was funny, he'd be so funny. Um, you're going to look at the costs and the benefits. And again, this is going to be fitness related, hopefully, directly looking at fitness. Not always possible, we'll talk about that in a sec. But hopefully, something that directly relates to fitness, or directly is fitness, fitness cost, fitness benefit. So with the uh, ability to metabolize lactose in adulthood, we certainly could look at uh, fecundity rates, so uh, fertility rates among people with uh, that gene and people without it. That would be probably difficult. We could, however, make a pretty good guess that someone who's sick every time they drink something that's a big part of the diet of the people where they live is going to have more trouble having kids. Okay. Now, not all traits are adaptations, and we'll come back to this at the end today, but not all traits that exist today are adaptations. Today. The conditions that made the trait evolve that may not exist anymore. The trait itself also may be a maladaptive side effect of an adaptive trait. So the conditions don't exist. Again, it's always nice to look at people here in this you know, behavior course because our environment has changed so drastically in the last 10,000 years. Unlike most other animals, things have changed very, very quickly. So the conditions that exist, we don't exist today. Um, male spatial superiority in humans. It's a reliable effect. Males on the average are about a standard deviation better than women, men better than women on spatial tasks. The adaptive value of that was the men used to do the hunting. And that's a spatially loaded task. I've got a plan, me and my friends have to plan out a hunting strategy, and then one of us has to throw a spear that hits a moving target. That's a very spatially loaded task. 
If you don't do that well, you don't pass your genes on. Today is valuable. It doesn't make any sense. So it's not an adaptation today, but it was 10,000 years ago. We could have seen it's a maladaptive side effect of an adaptive trait. Think about something like, again, in humans, a lot of the evolutionary psychology ideas about psychological disorders are maladaptive side effects of an adaptive trait. There's a notion that people that are depressed, that that's an adaptation, or was an adaptation. Um, when you do something and something bad happens, withdrawing socially is a good idea, maybe. I'm not telling you to be depressed. Okay? I'm saying that it makes some sense. Do we have too much of that? We call that depression. Being really focused on someone patterns and hyper-focused on things like that is often good for problem solving. Too much of that we call autism spectrum disorders. Right? So we can have something that's a, it's a maladaptive side effect of an adaptive trait. So just because you see a trait doesn't mean it's adaptive. You've got to keep that in mind. Any questions? Make sense? Okay. So this goes with this, maladaptive expression of an adaptive trait. <clears throat> Again, adaptive trait, conceivably uh, aggression in Almost all, any polygynous animal, you have more aggression in the males than in the females. Us included. That's an adaptive trait because you're fighting for access to mates. It's maladaptive if it's taken too far. Just, yeah, just throw your rivers in the floor. What the heck? folks, you know? Pigs. Just, no, not you guys. Stop using the classes you before. Right, we got a test. It was, a, it was a test on time telling, was it? <laughs> Thank you. Um, the trait itself also may just be an exaptation. Greatest example here, we just talked about the other day, feathers. Feathers are pretty useful for flying, but that's not what they evolved from. They're basically for thermal regulation. We know this because we can look at flightless birds and we can look at the shape of their feathers. We, can also, we also now know that um, dinosaurs, T-Rex, chicks were furry with feathers. They were probably cute for a short period. A very short period. Then they get really big. <laughs> Then evolution grabs onto that adaptation for one thing and turns it into something. This makes it useful for something else. That's an exaptation. That's an idea that Stephen Jay Gould came up with, and we'll come back to it a little later. Okay. So if, if we're going to find out something that affects fitness, we're going to have to measure fitness. Now sometimes, and this is pretty rare actually, we can directly measure fitness, things like gamete production. 
Right? So sperm and egg production. Offspring survival. Right? Again, we can do that. Well, I'll have an example today. So I like that. We can look at rate of copulation. <coughs> because copulation rates are going to, I think, correlate pretty highly with fertility rates. Fertilized egg production. Uh, offspring production, not just survival. Sorry, not survival, but just production. Uh, offspring independence, so they get old enough to become adults. And I mean, this one here, really, frankly, is the best, the closest thing to what Darwin said, because that's surviving to the adult breeding population. Right? But all these things are going to be highly correlated with this, aren't they? To the point where we can call all of those direct measures of fitness. By the way, there's no special thing in turkey that makes you sleep. There's not enough tryptophan in it to make you. You have to eat a whole turkey. And at that point, I think the amount of food in your system, you know, I think that's going to push you to sleep, not so much the amount of extra tryptophan. Anyway, it's the spelling myths. It's what I do. I'm like the Mythbusters without a big stupid mustache and a TV show and a bunch of money. Um, sometimes we're going to have to do it indirectly, though. Indirect emission fitness. Um, improve locomotion. Sure. Get around better, you're going to get around better. Improved access to food. So foraging employees, that's going to be good. Um, improve survival chances. You can't pass your genes on if you're dead. Hard. Improved access to territories. Again, territorial, when we talk about territory, you'll see that it's directly related to fitness. Uh, better quality territories lead to better fitness. Usually males have territories. Of any animal is territorial. And the females choose males very often based highly on the territory quality of the male. So better That's just good. You know, th these are just off the top of my head. I mean, I've seen other stuff. These are the ones that I came up with. Okay. Questions? You good? Yeah. Okay. Here's an example. Um, now, we don't have a lot of these kind of bells here. Um, we have uh, shithawks or seagulls. Um, <laughs> But I don't know if there's any nesting grounds around here. That's something we saw in Newfoundland, though. You see things like herring gulls, um, piping plovers. These are, these are uh, and real seagulls that go to the sea. They're a little different. They talk with a Newfoundland accent. They talk also like Keo. Not today. I think really dead in here. It's a tough one today. Um, <clears throat> What do they do when you get near their nesting colonies? Because they nest colonial. Right? So they'll be on, you know, on a beach, uh, for example, and they'll have people in tons of nests. They're all together. When you approach them, uh, the first thing they do in this section of behavior is called they'll dive bomb you. They, they shit on you. 
They swoop down, right to your head. I don't want to scare anybody. It was going to do it to me, but she wasn't looking. And I was going to shoot. Ah! And then it was going to look like I was abusing a student and doing an investigation. So you know, right down. They'll also actually hit you. They'll swoop down and they won't just, like, it's first, well, we shit on them, that didn't work. We swooped down, tried to scare them. Well, now we just, now, you know, weapons free. And now that they come here with, with, with their beaks and they just hit you in the head. They can be very nasty. Very nasty. Here's a guess. These yes, this behavior is an adaptation for defense of their young. That's what it accomplishes. More young survive, good for your fitness, right? So that that's a good guess. But we don't know that. We actually have to go and collect some data and see if this behavior actually increases survival. Right? Because remember, not all behaviors are adaptations. And it's funny because a lot of times people say, well, obviously that's what it is. But I mean, if you're going to look at something and say it's a behavior for this, in other words, that's the function, and this adaptation, you have to, you know, you have to uh, uh, get some evidence. So the question is then, does mobbing increase fitness? It sounds pretty obvious, So there we get the question, we get the idea of the behavior, the question we're asking. Okay. If mobbing is indeed an adaptation, then the degrees of success experienced by mobbing gulls in protecting their eggs should be proportional to the degree to which predators are actually mobbed. So look at this again. Let me break it down, yo. Um, the degree of success experienced by loving gulls in protecting their eggs, not everybody's eggs, should be proportional to the degree to which the predators are actually mobbed. The more mobbing, the more success. That's what that's saying. That would have to be the case. Right? Another Dutch guy. First time you've ever seen two U's together unless the word vacuum. Testing this prediction. Place 10 head eggs every 10 meters on a line leading from the outside to the inside of the colony. See, you say, well, why didn't you look at the gulls on eggs? Well, he's, this is control, so he's going to see if these eggs survive. Because what comes in typically are hawks or um, so they might come in and swoop, swoop in, or uh, little mammals come and, and take the eggs and eat them. So the ones outside the colony were, were more likely to have been taken. So the further you go out from the center of the colony, the more likely the egg had been taken. Sounds pretty good. It seems like the closer to the center of the colony, the less likely it's going to survive, or certainly more likely it's going to survive. We can say that there's more mobbing closer to the middle of the colony. Oh, that all sounds pretty good. So here's Keith's data. 
Here's where you get zones outside the colony. This is the border of the colony, and this is inside the colony. Um, probability that a crow, so this is what we're using, um, would be the subject of attacks, a gull, greater than 10 attacks of gulls per minute. Let's do a line. Okay? Unlikely, very likely. Probability here now is up to what, 90, somewhat about 80. 7% probability to be more than 10 attacks by gulls to a crow. So we have crows coming in as predators. And here, percentage of successful predation attempts. Oh, look. They're like the two lines are mirror images. Okay. Much less likely to be successful. The closer you are to the center of the corner. Looks pretty good. Okay. So that looks pretty reasonable. It's a class experiment, that's why I mentioned it, even though it's like a year before I was born. Still, it's a class experiment. And I just like saying, <laughs> Okay. There's also barn swallows. These are swallows that live, you guessed it, in barns. Yeah. Birds are named so well, or weirdly, like there's the grackle, I don't know what that means, but like red-winged blackbird, you look at it and go, yeah, that's what that is. Barn swallow, it's a swallow that lives in a barn, well done. They also mop, right? Now, this could be self-defense, what if it's not... What if the, the egg, the success or failure of, of defending an egg is a side effect, right, like we talked about, of just keeping crows and hawks and stuff away from me. Somebody bursts in here right now, you know, let's hope this doesn't happen. If somebody bursts in here right now, one of those crazy guys that comes in with a gun, you know, like happens in the States, what if it's happened here too, not here, not here, I mean the country, it's a big country. Clip in Big Country by the band Big Country from their first album, Big Country. <laughs> um, right there. But anyway, let's say I wrestle the guy to the ground. Yeah. Hero. I was just trying to save myself, really. And her, the rest of you guys have to care less about. Um, but, you know, saves 30 university students. He's a hero and he's blind. I have my mind, my letterman has me on. Well, really, it was just a side effect, Dave. Me protecting myself and my daughter, the rest of them, I really couldn't give a shit. Well, I shouldn't have said that out loud. <laughs> now I'm not a hero anymore. So it's a side effect, right? I'm just trying to save my own genes, perhaps. And I save all you guys, too. Or maybe I mean, let's, let's make it even more callous. I'm not trying to save her either, just myself. I'm just really a coward. I don't want to get hurt by a gun, and I knock the guy over. He's a hero! So it could just make a pure self-defense. Sacred selfishness. Could be a mating advertisement. That's where it gets weird. I'm not going to talk about that. I'm happily married. Um, sure. Think about this. If you are really active fighting off bad guys when you're a barn swallow, perhaps the lady swallows go, oh yeah, he's got the good genes. Right? 
It's kind of like when you go to a party full of bros and they're, and they're just doing, <laughs> you know, weights. How much can you bench, man? Yeah, what a party. Where's the beer? Who are you? Those guys have always been around. We didn't call, call them that then in a different name, but it's still. But I asked bench? No. Who are you? Why am I at a frat party? Give me an alternative for it. Okay, think about this. Instead of actually caring for your young, just make sure they don't die. Okay. Now, again, a lot of these sound silly, but they could all lead to success in defending eggs that aren't really attempts to defend eggs. So shields uh, place a stuffed owl. I love these. So many times in like ethology research, they have a stuffed something and just put it somewhere. Stuffed owl near a colony of barn swallows and then took note of who bought the owl. Sounds like a really bad title of an Agatha Christie novel. Who bought the owl? You guys are literate, or that wasn't funny? Okay, let's go with that. Um, okay, that's actually kind of clever, right? Because we can control the predators. The other experiment, the peak experiment, it's a field experiment, which are great. This is two, but they don't have control. Like, um, you can say, oh, here's the predator, here's the predator, this, 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 this. It's here we're, we're actually controlling that. So you got to stuff that out. So I guess you sneak in, you put the owl down, you go back and watch the hilarity. Today this would be a YouTube video. It wouldn't have been a paper in animal behavior. It would just be some guy's YouTube video. Okay. Here's the day. It says, mocking by barn swallows, individuals of various types present in the study, colonies of act who's actually doing the mobbing? So the percentage of the population, this is basically, this is based on uh, observational stuff that birds would have been banded. So you know individuals, you know who's who. They just all have different color codes on their legs. Okay, 9% are unmated adults. Uh, nine, uh, sorry, 6%, 9% are adults before incubation. During incubation, 14%. 51% are adults with young. And 20% are juveniles. This is the percentage of the population. Now, if it doesn't matter, if that percentage is the same as the percentage you mob, you might say, well, it's, it's probably have nothing to do with fitness. It's more like self-defense, for example. Right? First of all, a couple interesting things. Juveniles don't mob. Okay. You're too young to go to war, Jimmy. Six and two are basically this. I know six is three times two. I can do math. But that's not a whole big difference when you think of the percentages. Nine and ten are basically, sorry, nine and eleven are basically the same number. Fourteen and ten, but, oh look, adults with young. It's not when they're incubating. They're not protecting their eggs. They're protecting their young. That's, now we know what, well, that's the pile of stuff that was on the TV. So that's where we're going to put this mess? Well, this mess is on my walkie. 
One of the calculators in here. Okay. Now we're going to get away again. That's pretty clear, isn't it? It's a very clever experiment, too, because you. This gets at who's doing what. And also, the data now spills you that are into that kind of thing is exceedingly simple. You do a chi squared, right? And then you look and say, oh, it would be significant and uh, be a big number, too. And you say, then you look at the chi squared table and say, where's the difference? Two things, juveniles don't <clears throat> at all, and adults with young do, big difference is there. Basically, they're protecting their young. It's a nice, sort of clever experiment. It's very well uh, designed there. Okay. Questions about that? So, see, it's actually better than the community experiment. And in fact, it leads to a different conclusion. The conclusion here is they're protecting their young, not they're protecting their age. Remember, adults incubating really no different than adults uh, incubating the model. Research is the same. So what they're doing, what this behavior does, at least in barn swallows, now we don't really know the answer for gulls, but in a second, we can probably say it's the same. <clears throat> that in gulls it's that's uh, right. Barn swallows, we know, it's protecting their young. Live young. Oops. This one's still okay. Now, I talked to you today with the comparative method. Um, so we can look at closely related species and see what they do. I talked about that when I talked about cowbirds, uh, for example. Percentages, uh, sort of number of uh, species that they parasitize. Um, there's a question of other behaviors. Adaptation can also be partially answered with the comparative method. <coughs> so, who's going to bother? Well, colony nesters that are in the open on beaches, big open areas. That's who's going to model. If you're a, a cliff dweller, it sounds like some kind of, it's a set of people in Game of Thrones. Right. The cliff dwellers, they should bring that in. You must climb the cliffs and fight the cliff dwellers. So cliff nesting birds should model. Why should they? Doesn't make any sense. Why would that have ever evolved? The only thing that's going to get up there is not going to be a whole lot of predation. You can almost put adaptation to, 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 to not have uh, predation. Your youngest to nest somewhere where no one can get to you. Up in Elysium. See that? Pretty good. What was it that? Oh, it's like Captain Phillips. Also, the final scene is just like a mission in, in, in um, Medal of Honor Warfighter. Well, Medal of Honor Warfighter is like that because it's a true story. But anyway, you should see it's awesome. Oh, thanks. That's the movie review for today.
check out my son Jonathan's review on this podcast. He talks about it for a while, then he tells me about his Michael Bay fan fiction. Um, Matching <laughs> <coughs> up lately, it's My Little Pony, and um, it's a horror video game. Maybe it is Silent Hill. He's mashing up some horror video game in My Little Pony. <laughs> so first, the cliff nesters would not draw, while those that are grand nesters would, we shouldn't care about. We're going to use the comparative method for, we can look at within, so gulls that cliff well and gull, uh, the cliff nest and gulls that nest um, in colonies. We should look at swallows that nest in colonies and swallows that nest on the ground, and we should find that the driving thing is where they nest, not that they're swallows, but that they're gulls. Because we know that selection, right, the environment does the selection, so where they live is what should, should be the most important thing. You, you understand the logic of this? You good? Okay. So regardless of relatedness or even what family they're in, gulls will be the same family and swallows will be the same family. They shouldn't matter. When I talk about food storing birds, we find the same thing, right? That it's the food storing that leads to the better memory, not that you're achieving your tip mouse or that you're a crow or a, a nutcracker or that you're a nuthatch. What it is is your lifestyle, your life history, the niche you're in. We're talking about convergent and divergent evolution. In fact, this is the case. Nice little diagram here. Ground nesting gulls, colonial nesting swallows, and we have in the Kittaway and the Ruffling swallow, they're pretty distantly related, but they both don't mob, they live up on cliffs. So this shows us, this is time on this axis. This shows us when they split off. So it says here, similar selection pressure. The cool thing is actually they both, the two that don't mob, um, evolve from species that do mob. We know this through, through looking at molecular genetics. Yeah, it's convergent evolution where uh, they don't have the same. It's this, right? Yeah, don't have the same. Don't have the same um, ancestors. Uh, recent ancestor, mm -hmm. uh, but have the same environment. So it leads to the same behavior. These are also convergent evolution, and within a related group, this is divergent evolution. We get this with a lot of traits. It's cool to see with behavioral traits. We get it with a lot of other things. Convergent evolution of vision. Vision's been developed a lot of different times by evolution, but it always solves the same problem. How do you detect patterns of light? There's a few different ways to solve the problem, but they all work. Right? You can have eyes that can kind of move around, or you can have bug eyes, right? Compound eyes, they're like a whole bunch of eyes in one eye, and you can see how much is in. These whole pile of eyes versus this big pile of eyes, then you know where something is. Both work. That's convergent evolution. 
the common ancestor of insects and humans, probably didn't see. Probably didn't do much. A long time ago. So this is in fact the case. We totally expect this. And again, it's the same thing we found with the food stores. That it's the storing lifestyle that leads to the specialization of learning better memory and different memory. It also led to other things like, for example, not migrating. Pretty much any songbirds you see around here in the next few weeks that they're still here are food stores. You're going to see chickadees, you're going to see uh, blue jays. Those are food stores. They're pretty distant in the way. So the common ancestors of gulls and barn swallows a long time ago. You know, we'd say it's Archaeopteryx, but it's millions and millions of years ago. But it's the recent selection pressure that has led to the convergent and divergent evolution. Some colonial mammals model. Squirrels. Belting's ground squirrels. They mob. I'd rather be mobbed by, this is like that Reddit question, right? But I'd rather be mobbed, I think, by birds than a whole bunch of angry squirrels. Mm -hmm. It's true, you gotta think it's sort of six degrees of freedom of movement with birds. But I'd, I'd be afraid that the, the squirrels will start biting my feet and my legs come after me. Of course, with a sergeant, I don't do that if I kill squirrels. That's where the bird is. Batting in the air, yeah, maybe birds are a little more scary. <laughs> squirrels are kind of funny. Like, birds are weird because they have no expression in their face and they're dinosaurs. Whereas squirrels, you can kind of go, it's kind of cute that 800 squirrels are coming after me. <laughs> in a way, now I've got to go. But it's pretty cool. So we've got colonial mobbing, a colonial nesting mammals that do this. You've probably all seen the picture of the, the, the they have actually guard squirrels that scream at alarm calls. You've probably all seen that picture. It, it's been before one of those memes, which is what a meme is. I told you what a meme was already. Another one, though, with squirrel standing up and spits balls hanging there. That's a guarding, that's a, a building's ground squirrel guarding uh, a colony. Interesting thing is, though, they tend to, I told you guys about this, right, earlier on, they tend to scream more loudly when they're near their own relatives, so they're really guarding their family. Just like these guys. Pretty cool. But you know that picture, right? I'm not. Nuts. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I really didn't do that on purpose. Like, you've seen that picture, right? Of the squirrel? Okay, good. So I'm not making up weird porno squirrel things in my head. Like, I've seen that. You've all seen that. Okay. If I named these lecture episodes on the podcast differently, this would be called Squirrel Porn. Totally. Okay. We'll talk more about optimality, optimality models later on. And in fact, those of you guys that take 3107, April Ecology, a lot of it's that. Um, optimality models tell us when does it make
makes sense to use a particular strategy. These are going to be mathematical models. What does it make sense to evolve a particular strategy? Now we're getting into a bigger thing. This isn't about maybe a particular animal. This could be just about something theoretical. And look at the costs and the benefits using what are called optimality models, which are these mathematical, um, they're mathematical models. And all they do is look at costs and benefits. You hear the economics? Okay. One of you? Very good. Same logic as, as uh, economic model. It's exactly the same kind of idea. In fact, the, 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 the the stuff goes together very well. In fact, we talk about behavioral economics. Okay. And, and that should really remind you of something you've seen in economics, the cost and benefit curve, right? supply and demand curve. It's just supply and command. Um, here's case Ontario. So when do you mob? That's the question you can ask. Now this could be when do you mob or when do you evolve a mobbing strategy? And again, the animal isn't conscious. Hey, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to evolve this. That's not how it works. It's all shorthand. The evolutionary decision, um, the animal isn't making that decision itself. So this is this between mobber and a predator in meters. Okay, and here we have uh, the units of fitness, this is typically what you will see in these optimality models, they just say units of fitness. Now, we can then look, and we can look at the uh, benefit. So here's action, there's a benefit of the action, the cost of the action. If the mobber and the predator are pretty close, the cost and benefits are going to be pretty close. High cost, high benefits. High cost because you're gonna fight. High benefit because if you win the fight, you're going to survive. Low cost, low benefit if it's far away because you gotta get all that distance, low benefit. And there's also low return on this, on your investment basically. See, there's your economics right there. Because why'd you go all the way over there to fight that guy? The biggest difference is going to be right here, right in the middle, and in this model, it's about at 1.5 meters, and it's all just because of the parameters that are thrown into the mathematical model. That's when you should model. And that's when you should see most of the animals walk is right about here. This is where the costs outweigh the benefits the most. So the benefits outweigh the costs the most, I'm sorry. So the top of it looks just at costs and benefits. What you do now with this kind of model is you build this model, this is obviously pretty, well, well, yeah, it's pretty easy math. You can easily quantify these things. You can make some pretty easy guesses that the Costs drop pretty drastically and the benefits are linear. Then all you do is you take a look at some data out in the wild and you see when certain animals do things, change the parameters, until you come up with, oh, look, I found exactly it's one and a half meters, that means these are the values for this species in this situation. Okay? 
one's cool. Now the bottom model looks at percentages of cautious and daring mob. You know what a cautious and daring mob is? A cautious mob is over here. I'm not going to get much, but it's not going to hurt me too badly. I'll go fight that guy over there. I'll take my time getting there. That's cautious. Daring mobber is, come on, let's go. What you want to throw? That's a daring mobber. It's a goon. It's cold and orb. No hockey fans in the room. Um, whereas this one here looks at the percentage of cautious and daring mobbers. And the interesting thing is, they'd be dependent on each other. The ESS thing. So what we have here is the relative thickness of both, and this is the percentages of cautious models in the population. And the more cautious ones, the larger cautious, you'll have a few of these. And it's all based on, in fact, what you want to look at is really where the two inter intersect. And that's what we should get uh, for the percentages of cautious and daring models is where those two curves intersect. because this is all calculus. This is all calculus. You go to graduate school, you learn all about this. You go to graduate school, you learn behavior. You learn all about this, which I'm sure is none of you. Maybe a couple, maybe one. You will learn all about this stuff. But the idea of the shape of the curves, don't worry about the calculus, just look at it. It's pretty intuitive. Right? It's pretty intuitive. And once you know the shape of the curves, you then just go, oh, it's that kind of curve. I know what equation makes that kind of curve. It's actually not that, this kind of model is not that horribly hard. Okay, questions about that? Right. Now, the adaptationist approach, the idea that we look at behavior from that adaptationist perspective, what are its costs and benefits? has not gone without its criticisms. Um, probably the biggest <laughs> critic of this uh, has over the years has been Stephen Jay Gould. He's the only paleontologist ever appeared on The Simpsons. You ever seen that? Remember when Lisa finds an angel skeleton? It's Stephen Jay Gould. It's actually his voice, too. He's apparently a very big fan of the show. And she says, did you do the DNA testing on the, on the, on the angel skeleton? He says, oh, of course not. So we can give Gould some credit. I'm going to trash him momentarily, but I've never been on the and never will be. Now, one of the things that he says, and I mentioned this early on, is the trait itself may be maladaptive now, but would have been adaptive then. Um, in humans, and most of his criticism comes from people looking at human evolutionary psychology, what we used to call human sociobiology. But it also relates to other stuff. By the way, he's an amazing uh, paleo, a paleontologist. Pretty good theorist, 
Uh, a lot of that stuff, I wouldn't criticize it at all. The idea of punctuated equilibrium, that evolution isn't slow, that it goes slow, slow, then changes very drastically. That's his idea. A lot of credit. So I'm going I'm to say his ideas and adaptation are wrong, but I'm also going to say that he deserves a great deal of credit for other stuff. So don't just think I'm going to be trashing him completely. He knew his stuff. He just was wrong here. The trait may be not adapted now, but maybe adapted then. We talked about in humans the idea of, of male aggression. There's another one. It's not adapted anymore. Most crimes are committed by men. Most murders are committed by men. Most murders are men killing men. That doesn't sound very adaptive. Killing, you know, getting in killing fights often involves dying. It's hard to pass your genes on when you're dead. It probably made sense a long time ago. Not so much anymore. But I should say trait, not trail. The trail is not adaptive. You are going down a not adaptive trail. I mentioned this at the beginning. Of course, it could be not adaptive now. Trait may be not adaptive byproduct of a previously adaptive or presently adaptive trait. Uh huh. So what you're saying there, Steve, is that not everything's an adaptation. Uh-huh. Started the lecture up that way, Steve. And he's not going to reply to me because he's dead. And why would he anyway? Even when he was alive. That about five years ago. Cancer. Dead. He really liked baseball and he was a communist. Um, pretty sure he was a communist. I'm just saying. So the trait never would have occurred in the past, but these new crazy conditions make it show up. Now, this is another one we could think about, for example, in humans, psychopaths, serial killers. People are isolated from others, they're pretty violent, and then they eventually solve crimes, and then they have a bad end to their series. Yes, it's Dexter. <laughs> but a lot of criminality today we probably didn't see I'm not saying the world was a pleasant place nature is red in tooth and claw let's understand that but we probably didn't have some of the same sort of like things that serial killers things like that. <coughs> so something crazy makes it show up now This is one I never really understood. He said, well, the trait isn't perfect. Because um, it's constrained by past evolutionary events. So you can't say this is an adaptation because you've got to look at evolutionary history and see that it had to come from somewhere, et cetera, et cetera. See, the thing is, one of the assumptions of the adaptationist approach is that we assume something isn't an adaptation, but we know how to measure if it is, and then we test that. It's a little thing I like to call science. He, he was way too, he was political about this. That was where, that's why it's the common thing. He was political about this. He didn't like the idea that human behavior 
might be constrained by evolution. Okay? So we're going to test the prediction. You start with the null, say we don't know if it's an adaptation or not, and then you test it. I, don't, I never knew where you got this perfection thing from. I really don't know where that came from. Um, the point isn't that the adaptation itself or the behavior is to be correct. It's got to be proved. So the idea is something has to be proved wrong. Um, sort of looking at this from this essentialist position, which is that, but what does it really mean? 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 And that's not how science works. If you said to somebody, physicist, what's gravity? They'd say, you know, gravity. It's one right there. Gravity. Well, what causes that? Gravity. You go in it. Graviton and all that stuff. There's an attraction between two things. It just is. You don't say, well, 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 well why? Yeah, but why? Yeah, yeah, but why? You get the flu, you go to the doctor, you say, they say you got influenza. Why? Well, because of a virus. But why? Why viruses? Well, the viruses are alive and they're trying to pass their genes on too, and they, they take over cells and they take over the reproduction system. But why? You, you stop asking that question at some point. This isn't an essentialist endeavor. It's an operationalist endeavor. The idea here is we try to measure something and we see if we can control and predict. That's what's going on. He was looking at it like really big from the essentialist position. That's always been my view of Gold's uh, criticism of the adaptationist approach to, um, to behavior. It can't be, but it can't be, but it can't be. And it's like, it's like there's two sets of people talking to each other, and they weren't listening to each other at all. It's part of the problem. So, now, I will say that he, you know, he coined the phrase rabbit adaptationist, which I kind of like, because everything isn't an adaptation. All behavior you see in, in, in animals, be they humans or otherwise, isn't an adaptation. Right? Our big heart wasn't adapted to make it possible for us to be smart. Our human consciousness is probably an acceptation. Right? We only have the ability to, because of our distant relatives who lived in the trees, we have the ability to detect where we were um, in three-dimensional space really quickly, really well, because if you screw that up, you die when you're swinging from limb to limb. And then we got onto the ground and we had all this advanced brain power, and we didn't need it anymore, so we used it for something else. It's almost the definition of an expectation. So human consciousness might simply be an expectation. 
So saying it's an adaptation, right, you can't say that until you can prove that it has some any good goodness in humans. Because there aren't unconscious humans. I mean, yeah, I know what it is. What I'm talking about, not that kind of unconscious. Non-self-aware humans, there aren't very many of those. Also, don't fall for naturalistic fallacy. This is something that, again, I'm sort of delving off into the human area here, but frankly, this is a good, a good place to mention it. The naturalistic fallacy says because something is natural, it is therefore good and correct, and you know, morally correct as well. Just because something's natural doesn't make it right, doesn't make it wrong either. It is perfectly natural that Male, male metal, metal holes have more uh, mates than females do. In other words, they're polygamous. It is perfectly natural, in fact, that humans do. And we are mildly polygamous. Is it right? I don't know. It's not my business. I'm telling you morality. I don't think so. That's not my, that's my morality, that's not yours, I don't care. But the argument of, it is natural for female humans to do childcare, do more childcare than male humans. Is it right? No. That's just stupid. It's natural. That's the way it has worked in nature for the longest time we've been humans, yeah. It explains as well, by the way, the female verbal superiority, who taught the culture to the young, who taught them how to speak. Right? Female humans, taught the little baby humans. What is that, right? Should I say, well, you know, you girls should go back in the kitchen, make us boys some snacks. It's natural. No! That's just being a pig! <laughs> Funny, a lot of evolutionary psychology, and I mean, and I think this is part of the problem with Gould had, but others also criticize it, saying that it's 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 using the status quo and it wants to oppress women and minorities. And no, it doesn't. It's just saying that's the way the world was for a long time. If I said there was slavery in the United States until 1863, I'm not saying it's right. I'm saying, look, that's how it was. No, I won't tell you. <laughs> Don't cloud this with facts. You know? We stole this land from the native people. That's just true. Don't tell me. You don't say that, right? Same kind of thing. So the naturalistic fallacy is something that's very important. You've got to realize that you can't be around that patroness, but you also can't do this. Just because something is, is, is natural doesn't make it good or bad. It just is. It's like saying gravity is morally correct. Right? No, it's just gravity. It always reminds me of people that say, yeah, I don't do acid because uh, it's not natural. I don't take mushrooms. I usually say the same thing. Would you like a big pile of shit? Because that's natural. <laughs> It's totally natural. It's organic. Idiot. 
<laughs> so it's what reproductive success means. You really need this approach to test why something evolved. This is why the adaptationist approach is exceedingly useful. It's because it tells us why something evolved. When we put it together, last point with the historical pathway stuff, yeah. um, and we can really do a nice job talking about the evolution of behavior. And now this could be the evolution of behavior um, within a species, so looking at over time what's happened, along with changes in the species and its ancestors, or we can look at using the comparative method, looking at convergent and divergent evolution, and say what evolutionary pressures have led to what behavior. But like I said, it's really, if, the, if there was a take-home message besides the idea of just the basic adaptationist approach, this is really important. The naturalistic fallacy. Okay. It, it's something that whenever we see behavior in any animal, us or anything else, we say, well, that, and if we have an evolutionary approach and we're, we're naive about it, we often say, well, that must be correct because that's how it evolved. It's like, it'd be like saying, well, you're sick, we shouldn't give you medicine because that's natural selection. No, that's being an asshole. Those are two different things. That's corrupting these ideas. That's corrupting these ideas. Right. Questions? Well, I guess it's good that guy's test went a long time because we've done a little early anyway. All right, thanks, guys.
podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.